and I'll be getting there as well. In Acts chapter 4, if you'll remember with me last week, we looked at the disciples and how they, they had started to do what Jesus had called them to do. He told them, he said, I want you to go into all the world and share what I've taught you. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to, uh, uh, teaching the, the things that basically Jesus taught them. I want you to go into all nations, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all the things that I've taught you. And so as he taught them that, they, they started doing this. They, they couldn't help but do this. Since the day that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, he ascended into heaven, and he said to wait in Jerusalem till he sent the promise of the Father, which was the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave them a mission, and he also sent the power for them to fulfill that mission. And as he sent them, it didn't always go well for them. We saw a couple of weeks ago, they started testifying to the fact that they had healed this lame man at the temple. And when they healed this lame man, the leaders of the Senate or the temple had decided that they were upset about it. It says that they were greatly annoyed that they were preaching in the name of Jesus, that this lame man was able to walk. And so they put these men to trial, Peter and John. They said, by whose authority are you doing these things? And Peter and John testified to the fact that it was the authority of Jesus Christ whom they had rejected, but who God had risen from the dead. And that's what we celebrate during Easter, that Jesus is not a dead God or a dead Savior, but He is resurrected, He is alive. The work that He has started is continuing. And so, as we see this, we also see that Jesus' disciples proclaimed this message and it wasn't popular amongst the religious folks. They um, didn't want the people to be stirred up. They didn't want the people to start ignoring what they were teaching. They didn't want to lose their own little disciples. They were building their kingdom. And all of a sudden these untrained, unlearned, bold men who had been Jesus, with Jesus were basically doing the same things that Jesus had done even though they had gotten rid of Jesus. And so they felt like they had stopped this little uh, cult that they thought it was. They thought it was a cult that these, you know, oh great, all these guys have is Jesus. We've got all these religious rules and these religious rituals, but all they have is Jesus. Now, would that be said about us? I would be very blessed. Well, what do they have down there on Main Street? All they got is Jesus, but that's all we need. All we need is Jesus in order to make an impact and in order to share the gospel, the good news with people that are hurting, that need hope. And so when they met opposition, I want you to notice what they did. Last week we looked at the fact that when they met up with opposition, even religious opposition, the first thing they did was they went to their Father in heaven and they prayed. And we looked at that in verse 23 through about verse 28 last week, how they prayed to their God, knowing that sometimes he ordains those that we would see as wicked or evil to persecute those who are good and righteous so that his glory would shine through his servants. And I love what it says there in verse 27 of chapter four. It says, for truly, as they're praying to God, they say, for truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, 
Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. In other words, it was your plan to use the Gentiles, to use Pontius Pilate, to use evil King Herod, to put to death your son for the blessing, for the the propitiation, the payment for the sin of the world. It was your plan to use wicked men to bring glory to your name. (laughs) That blows me away that the wrath of man can praise God. Do you know that? The wrath of man, the evil schemes of men, even they praise God. Now they don't know they're trying to praise God, but when people purpose to do evil things to the righteous, God turns it around and twists it and uses it to bless the nations. And so Jesus being cursed, uh, Leviticus says, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. His cursing means for our blessing, for our new life that we've been given because we've been covered in the blood of Jesus. But we can't be covered, we can't be washed in the blood of Jesus unless it's first spilled. And we don't think about it that way. But in order for blood to be spilled, death has to happen. And so Jesus the message of this, this hope that we have in Jesus has been shared. And these men don't pray, Lord, get rid of our enemies. You know, put them to death. He, they pray, Lord, give us boldness so that even though we've been opposed by these men, we can still proclaim the message that you've commanded us to preach. We want to be obedient, Lord, no matter what it costs. Because you are obedient to your Father, no matter what it costs. We want to be like you. And so, <clears throat> now, as they've prayed for boldness, they pray, Lord, use us. What's happened is not only are they given boldness, but they're given purity. They're given power. And so we see in verse 32, it says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. In other words, they had one common goal, and so there was unity amongst the church. And it says, Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I think it's interesting that it says, with great power, the apostles gave witness. Because oftentimes I think what people think is that it's what a pastor has to say, or it's what um, the multitude... Is that Lucy back there? (laughs) That's my daughter. We think that if we say the right words or if we appeal to people's intellect and we'll get them to change their minds with our multitude of arguments or our multitude of reasoning. But the Word of God, what it does is it lines up with the will of God. And when the will of God is happening and the words of God are spoken, that's when they make an impact on people that don't know the Lord and on people that do know the Lord. For example... What I'm trying to say is that I used to, when I first started walking with the Lord, it was about seven years ago now, and I started going to church. And I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't raised in church. So the fact that I'm even sitting up here, once in a while I think about it, and I'm like, that's kind of funny, you know, that I'm sitting up and teaching the Bible every week. But what happened was I started going to this Bible study. It was somewhat like this. It was this kind of setting. It was actually these exact same chairs. And this same exact kind of flooring. And we were just sitting down and uh, Pastor Mike was teaching. And 
every week he would teach something or he would say something and, and it would directly speak into something that I was dealing with in my life. And I always thought, this guy's somehow sneaking up to my mailbox and reading my mail. He's reading my emails. He's reading my thoughts. All of a sudden he knows what's going on in my life. And every time he speaks, it's like he knows exactly what I'm going through. He knows what I'm struggling with. And so one week I was incredibly creeped out by this. And I walked up after service and he said, you need some prayer? And I said, yeah. I said, but I also need to ask you a question. Every time you get up and teach a Bible study, there's something that touches me. And I'm like, how did you know I was going through that? And he would look at me and, and say, well, I didn't know you were going through that. I, I barely have enough time to realize the things that I'm trying to go through and work through. He said, but that's God's word. That's God's spirit behind what his word says. You see, all the things that you're dealing with throughout your week, God's Holy Spirit is with you. And he's teaching you things. Not only when you're reading his word, which is important, but also when you're having conversations with individuals. When you're having struggles, when you're having things that are going great, God's speaking to you in those situations and he's trying to teach you things about himself and about his creation and about his plan for your life. But as he speaks those things into your life, at the end of the week, you go to a Bible study or at the middle of the week, you go to a Bible study and his word is opened up and he speaks through that person who's teaching or leading the Bible study. The things that line up with what you're going through are only because the Holy Spirit is using those words to, to give you the next step, to speak to you the next part of what He wants to teach you. It lines up because the Holy Spirit is the one doing the teaching. He's the power behind the words. And so that's my prayer every week that I don't know what you guys are going through individually. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know where you came from. I get little glimpses as we have conversations. But the Lord knows all things that you're going through and he knows what he's trying to teach you in your life. And so he uses things like Bible study. He uses things like prayer. He uses things like everyday normal conversations to teach us, to use his spirit to invoke in us things that we had never thought about before. And as he does that, he unifies the message from the Bible studies, the conversations, through the prayers, and through the things we don't know what to even pray about yet. And so it says there, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And because of that, great grace was upon them all. They understood that they were receiving a gift that was undeserved, and they understood it, and they worshiped God for it. So verse 34 says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds and the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. So God unified the people, gave them a heart for one another, made them think outside of themselves, look at, see what other people's needs were. And as other people had needs and they had extra, they would sell their things and they would use the money or the practical everyday things to bless the other person. Just this week that happened to us. Um, Kelly was uh, getting ready and we were, going to, uh, we were going to a banquet Thursday night. And of course we're getting ready to go. And she's doing her hair and 
doing the hairspray and the hair dryer and the, you know, whatever girls do. I don't know. I just use some gel and sometimes try to get it to look halfway decent. But as she's getting ready, she goes, oh no, which I'm always like, what's going on? She goes, my hair dryer won't work. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Your hair dryer's not working. What do we do? You know, I'm like, what do you need a hair dryer for? Won't it dry on its own? And she likes to make it look big, so you need a hair dryer for that. And so she was really bummed, and so we tried to go to her sister's house, and her sister wasn't home. And Anyway, so she didn't have a hair dryer. Now, we could have went and bought one, but as she was talking to somebody, telling the funny story, somebody had an extra one. And so uh, <laughs> God uses us to provide for each other's needs, sometimes because we need them, and sometimes just to bless somebody. Thank you, Ricky. She was so happy. She came home, she goes, I got a hair dryer. <laughs> That's all it takes to make Kelly's day. She's got a hair dryer now. So, <clears throat> I don't know. I just thought that was a fun story. So they, they took the extra from selling their possessions. And they laid it at the apostles' feet. And the apostles were then able to see the needs that other people had that no one knew about and distribute them accordingly. And because of that, the people were blessed and God's... Uh, God's church continued to build itself up. They continued to build each other up. But so then God gives this exact uh, specific example in verse 36 of someone who is doing this very thing. It says, And Joseph, or in other translations, it says Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, Having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit saw fit to go. Now, this wasn't just a generic, everybody was doing this. These, not everybody was selling their stuff, but there were certain people doing it. And for example, here's a man that was doing it. His name was Joseph, or the apostles had nicknamed him Barnabas. Why did they nickname him Barnabas? Well, we have there in parentheses, it just translates to the phrase, son of encouragement. So apparently this man was an encourager. And one of the ways that he encouraged people was he, he gave. And he sold his possession, he laid at the apostles' feet. And this is one of the ways that he felt that God was calling him individually to worship. Now, I don't know exactly why he told us about Barnabas. Perhaps it's because later in the book of Acts, we're going to see that Barnabas was used to do even greater things. So maybe this was a step of faith for him that he took. And later, God's going to use Barnabas to encourage and to go out and do just like Paul does. Paul goes out on three missionary journeys. We read all about them in the book of Acts. But Barnabas is kind of this obscure guy. We see him once in a while pop up in scripture. He encourages the other apostles. But he also goes on a missionary journey of his own. So God uses him in a mighty way. But I believe that Barnabas is particularly in this passage because we see in chapter 5 a contrast between him and a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if you've never read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, this may shock you. So <clears throat> there's your disclaimer, there's your warning. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. 
and he brought a certain part and he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own to control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. And then, verse 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last breath. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. So then it continues. The young man arose, they wrapped him up, they buried him, they carried him out, and they buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. He gives her an opportunity here, right? And she says, yes, we sold it for so much. In other words, he knew the amount that that Ananias had brought in. And he said, is this how much you sold your property for? And she said, yes. Then Peter said to her, verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Wow. You read a story like this and you go, what in the world is going on? God's killing people. This does not seem like a blessing at all. Why did this happen? Why were these people completely smoked on the spot? We see in scripture so many times where people lie and they're not smoked on the spot. I thought God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why does he deal with Ananias and Sapphira so strictly? Why does this happen? Well, we have this early church in its infant stages. And we have this group of people that are loving on one another. There's unity. They're encouraging one another. They're giving their possessions to bless one another. And then along comes this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, maybe that's why they give the story of Barnabas. Maybe they saw Barnabas and they saw, man, the apostles gave him a nickname. They, they see him as a buddy and, and he's well known. So maybe if we sell our possessions and we give them to the church, then maybe we can be well known. Maybe they'll give us a nickname. We'll be good friends with them. They'll invite us over to the house. We'll be prominent. And so as, as we see that, they perhaps had the wrong motives for their giving. And not only that, but let me ask you this question. Does God require us to sell all our possessions and to give the money to people? No. They never had to do that. And so Peter asked him, wasn't that possession yours? He could have said, yeah, it was. Wasn't all the money, if you ever decided to sell it, wasn't that money yours? Yeah. So why are you lying about it? Ananias and Sapphira could have sold their property and gave 10% of it. They could have sold their property and gave 50% of it. 
They could have sold their property and guess what? Given nothing to the apostles. And it would not have been sin. That was not the sin. Their sin was not that they gave all or said they gave all. No, that was their sin. Their sin wasn't that they didn't give enough. That's my point. Their sin was that they were saying they were giving all, but they weren't. They were lying. And Peter points out, you're not lying to me. You're not hurting my feelings. You're lying to your creator. You're lying to God. Why? Why would you do that? You can't lie to God. He knows. And so we see this and we see that God smokes him. Now, aren't you glad that God doesn't do that to us today? How many of you guys have ever sang that song, I Surrender All? Anybody? What if, just say on a happenstance, you were at church on a Sunday morning, that song came up on the screen, and we were going to sing, I Surrender All. But as you're singing that song, and we get done, you realize that, you know, I was singing that I surrendered all to God, but I don't know that I really have. There are areas of my life that I haven't really let God into yet. What if at that moment, God smoked you, and we were all standing here going, what happened? That would be pretty creepy, right? That would be ridiculous. It would be crazy. I praise the Lord that God doesn't do that, because I have sang that song. And just this week, I realized that there was another area that I thought, Lord, I've given this to you, and I hadn't. And God had to show me that. Because that's how our walk with the Lord is. Every day is a new opportunity to trust God in a new situation that we've never done it before. And we can either do one of two things. We can say, Lord, you can't have that yet. Or Lord, here you go. And guess what? The next time that he shows you another area, you're probably going to be at the same spot again. Hey, you know, you said you surrendered all, but there's this other area. What about that one? Are you going to give that to me? Or you still holding on to that one too? But he's graceful. He shows us those areas and he's patient. He doesn't expect us to give it all to him. He even lets us say, Lord, I give you my all. I'm giving you my life. I'm surrendering to you, my, my wife, my children, all my stuff. It's all yours anyway. Tell me what you want to do with it. And then he's like, well, you're saying that. and I love you too. Uh, but later I'm going to have to show you that that's not really true. You haven't really given that to me. But, you know, he loves us. So why Ananias and Sapphira? Why do they not get that same grace? Well, I believe that it has something to do with the church being in its infant stages. When, when we brought Lucy home from the hospital, what the doctors and the nurses said is they said, we want you to keep her inside. It's super hot out, and it's probably not necessary to get her a sunburn. You know, she's got very fair skin. She's fresh out of the womb. It's probably not a good idea to let just anybody hold her without washing their hands. You need to be careful because those little diseases that we're all immune to, when a child is an infant, they can't absorb them. They can't, their bodies can't fight off the infection. And so we have to be very careful about how we deal with things. In the early church, this, baby, this, this church is an infant and it has to take great care. And for people to come in and say that they're worshiping God and that they're being honest with Him and to lie while everyone else is actually doing that and to let it go on, continue in the church, can be harmful. 
Because number one, outsiders will think they can come in and just do whatever, be sloppy about it, worship God in whatever way they please, and that God will be pleased with it. He doesn't care if you lie to him. Just let it rip. But the other side is, is that those that actually are giving all and selling their possessions will be discouraged. Why, why would we even want to try? You know, we could probably hold back some of our money and then we won't have to worry about, you know, being poor. You know, God's called us to give this thing, but perhaps we could just lie about it, say we're giving all, and we could be, you know, no one's the wiser. God's not aware of these things. So anyway, I believe that it's because God wanted to show them, look, yes, I've given you grace. Jesus is Lord. He's died for our sins. But if you're going to call yourself a disciple, if you're going to say that you're giving all, I want your heart to be correct because I don't want anyone else to be stumbled and I don't want you to fool yourself into thinking that you really love me, into thinking that you really worship me. And I especially don't want you to lie to me. One of the things my dad used to say to me all the time, he said, there's nothing worse than a liar. Now, I don't know about that. God sees all sins as equal. But one of the things that we do when we come to him and we repent and we say, Lord, I want you to be my savior, is we're being honest. We're saying, Lord, I can't earn salvation. I can't get there on my own. I need you. So when we come to him, we're saying, Lord, you know all my sins anyway, Please forgive me of them and cleanse me of the ones I don't know about yet. And when you reveal to me a new one, I want to repent of that one. I want to grow. I don't want to just stay here in the same spot. I want to grow in my trust in you. And one of the ways we learn to trust him is just by being honest with him about our sin. And so sin could not be allowed. They couldn't absorb it in the early church. I'm sure I haven't really covered that um, <laughs> completely, but that's my understanding of it. God had to make an example. He had to nip it in the bud, as it were. It's kind of like when you start a garden. If you start a garden this time of year, and you let the weeds, just the little weeds, you let them grow, as they take root, if you don't weed them out, what happens is they will choke out your plants when you're trying to produce tomatoes. You won't get any. They'll suck all the nutrients out of those tomatoes, and you won't have any. And on top of that, you won't be able to get rid of the weeds because they will be deeply rooted. So he's rooting out the sin early so he can deal with it. And so the church can be pure. Because one of the things that the Lord is trying to do when we read his word, he's trying to purify us. He's trying to cleanse us. That's what his blood does. It doesn't just save us, but it also cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So verse 12 says, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets, laid them on the beds and couches. They didn't really literally have couches sitting out on the sidewalk. I've seen that before. I lived in a college town. We always had a, a, a couch on the front porch. These couches were more like chaise lounges, if that makes sense. It's something you usually see sitting next to a pool. I don't know if they were made out of wood or, or what, but they weren't couches, like plush with pillows. And, you know, I don't know. I read that. And that's what I think about. It says, um, they laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by 
might fall on some of them. Also, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing a sick people, bringing sick people, and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So remember how we started today. They were praying for boldness. And part of us being bold in our faith and in our testimony of what God can do is that He has to purify us first. And when He purifies us, sometimes it means things get subtracted from our lives. Do you know that? Sometimes God wants to remove things that are unhealthy for us spiritually so that we can grow. Since we've started reading the book of Acts, there has been addition to the church. Remember on the day of giving of the Holy Spirit, there were 3,000 saved. And later we see Peter preach again and there's 5,000 added to the church. And as we see these numbers grow, we're like, wow, the church is really growing. This is the only way it can continue, right? But for the first time in this chapter, we've seen two people subtracted. Now in our minds, the only way we want to see the church go is when only addition. That's how numbers get higher, right? We want higher numbers. Well, in God's economy, sometimes in order to grow the church, he subtracts. And in God's math equation, somehow, sometimes when he subtracts from the body of Christ, it multiplies the body of Christ. When there's purity, there's power. And when there's purity, there can be multiplication. And we see this in this section we just read, where God has shown that his power is still reigning in the church, He's spoken through Peter. He's given him a word of knowledge where he says, why have you decided that you're going to lie against the Holy Spirit? Now, Peter didn't know anything about Ananias and Sapphira, but he had a connection with the Lord, and the Lord told him, they're lying. And so the Lord chose to show, because he knows the hearts of men and women, that his presence was known in the church by speaking through Peter. And because of that, it says, Fear came upon all those who heard these things. When these people were smoked, when God dealt with them very strictly and they died, the people feared the Lord. We need to have a healthy respect for who God is and what He does because otherwise, what we'll start doing is trying to lie to Him, thinking that He really doesn't hear and that He really doesn't respond. But the Lord chastens every son whom He receives. He chastens his children. He gives them a whooping sometimes. Gets out the belt and shows them, hey, you need to stay away from this thing that you're doing because it's going to cause you harm in your life. And it's going to harm those that are around you. So stop it right now. And he stops Ananias and Sapphira. Now many people question, does that mean that they went to hell? I think it's a good question. There are many that say, I don't think so. I think he was just making an example of them, showing mercy so they couldn't keep on sinning. You know, I think sometimes God does that. There are people that struggle with addiction. There are people that struggle with uh, other things. Um, and they get sent into prison. And I think sometimes God ends their life early so they don't end it by disobeying him and causing them to do something that is permanent and could hurt someone else. I think that God does that. Now, that may not agree with your theology, but I, I, if I wish that I would have looked up an example because we see it in Scripture. So that being said, purity, him purging this sin out of the church, 
led to power. And we see this power manifested in verse 12 where it says, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. They had unity, and yet none of the rest dared to join them. They were afraid, those that didn't believe. They weren't going to just jump in there and act like they were Christians. There was, there was a healthy fear of the Lord. People were making their decisions based on their trust in the Lord. But the people that didn't believe, it says in verse 13, they esteemed them highly. They had a good testimony amongst those who didn't believe in Jesus. But verse 14, believers were increasingly added to the Lord in multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on the beds and couches. God's powers made manifest here, and people were being healed. People were being brought to the Lord that didn't know Him, that had a practical need, that would lead to them understanding that they had a spiritual need. They needed Jesus. They needed salvation. So I guess I want to draw a couple of conclusions from this passage. Some things that I noticed. Number one, God loves a cheerful giver. We see this with Barnabas at the end of chapter four. And I love what 2 Corinthians chapter nine, verse seven says. It says, so let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful means hilarious. I don't know about you guys, but when I think of the word hilarious, I see someone you know, who wants to give to the Lord. I see a guy like Barnabas. He sold his possession, and he's excited about it. It's not something that he feels like he has to do. Like, here you, here you go. Here you go, Lord. I know you need my money, so I'm going to give it because I have to. But it'll be more along the lines of, here you go, Lord. You've given me all this money. You've given me these possessions. And I'm just giving back to you just a small portion. 100% of it's yours anyway. But I feel like this is what you're calling to give for me to give. And I'm just blessed to be able to give it. That's what the Lord wants. A cheerful giver. A hilarious giver. Another, another thing I noticed from this passage is that we can't hide anything from God. He sees all. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says... There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Ananias and Sapphira thought that they had to give an account to Peter. And because they thought they had to give an account to Peter, they didn't consider that God is holy and that he's the one who they will have to give an account to one day. Number three, God deals with hypocrisy Harshly. The word hypocrisy means like we think of, have you guys ever seen like a sign for a theater guild or a drama club? They have the two masks. One's white and one's black. Usually the black one has a frowny face and the white one has a big smile. Everything's great. So when you think of hypocrisy, think of those two masks. And typically what happens, someone who's a hypocrite, they wear a mask for one situation, and then for the other situation, they take off that mask and they put on another one. They're not actually what they claim to be. God deals with the hypocrisy very harshly. So we need to ask Him, Lord, search my heart, know me, see if there be any wicked way in me. Because when we are a hypocrite, we're only deceiving ourselves. We may deceive those that are around us, but we can't deceive God. God deals harshly with hypocrisy. Number four, God has given us a way out of sin. Remember Peter, 
shows this example. He says, Sapphira, is this how much you sold your property for? Yes. She got a second chance. If somebody asked, I remember when I was younger, my dad would catch me lying. And he would always go, are you sure that this is what you, is this your final answer? Did you really do this? Uh Uh-huh. Now, the problem is, is sometimes we get, we, we can't lie at all. When children are young and you ask them something and they lie, they start laughing or they go and they look away. And it's so obvious that they're lying that you catch them. It's obvious. But then, once they get older, they might be like me. Got really good at lying. And so I didn't have a conscience anymore. I seared it by sinning. And then as I got really good at lying, I could hide it. I could make sure nobody knew I was lying. My parents could always tell. But then all of a sudden, they couldn't tell anymore. Because I got good at lying. We can harden our hearts. So we got to pray, Lord, soften my heart so I can't sin. Make it so I can't hide it. Make me so real with people that when I'm not real, it just makes me blush. Make it obvious to others that I'm lying. But God has given us a way out of sin. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. This is one of my favorite passages because it shows the grace of God, but it also shows the holiness of God. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. This is, I'll wait for you to turn there. It says, this is the message which we have heard from him and we declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In other words, what you see is what you get. Who he says he is, that's him. It doesn't change. There's no variation or shadow of turning. He's always the same. Verse six, John writes, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him, excuse me, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're only deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But, here's the good news, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all sin unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let me ask you, do you have areas in your life where you're a hypocrite? This is a searching passage because the Lord desires that we would just be honest with him. He knows about our thing anyway, whatever it is. Just be honest with him and he's willing, he's just, completely justified in cleansing us and forgiving us of our sin. We just have to come to Him and be honest. That's what repentance is. And number five, purity leads to power. Until now, we've only heard of God adding to the church, but God leads to them multiplying the church by them being clean, by them being washed, making them different than the rest of the world who carries around the weight of sin and has no power. If you ever feel like you're powerless to serve the Lord, and that you have no boldness to share his word. Perhaps it's because there's no purity. Perhaps it's because you haven't hallowed him, you haven't set him apart, you haven't been honest with him. He desires to make that correct. 
Subtraction in your life sometimes will lead to multiplication. Sometimes he'll remove things. Sometimes he'll remove friends. Sometimes he'll remove situations. Not just so you can be bummed about it, but so that he can put in place of it something that's different, something that's better, something that's pure, something that will lead to you being built up and holy and used by him. So Father, we thank you that you are desiring to do way more in our lives than sometimes we want. And uh, Lord, thank you that you're willing to go into our lives as a a surgeon and and remove the things that hurt us. And uh, Lord, we know at the same time when you do surgery, sometimes things that get removed hurt. And so Lord, uh, for us as individuals, as we seek to walk by faith and not by sight, we want to be obedient to you. Maybe we've been struggling with being obedient. Lord, take the things that we hold so dearly to and, and help us to let go of them if we need to in order to be obedient and in order to be holy, in order to be pure so that you can put in place in that same place where you've removed something, something that's way better. Lord, purify us, grow us, make us humble. Lord, make us real. Help us to be honest with you. Lord, remove the sin that so easily ensnares us. And Lord, as we serve you, as we desire to be holy, Lord, uh, give us joy. Help us to enjoy the fact that when you remove sin from our lives, it removes the barrier so that we can enjoy a deeper fellowship with you. Thank you that you're willing to be involved in our lives. Lord, uh, thank you that you're willing to be patient when we're unwilling to let go of things. But Lord, when you reveal them to us, give us the faith to let go of the things of this world that will keep us down. So Lord, thank you for the example in the early church. Thank you for Ananias and Sapphira being not only a a sobering reminder, but also an example showing us that even though you've given us Jesus and you've paid for our sins, you are still holy. You are still worthy of our worship and our reverence. So Lord, help us to worship you as a holy God and to fear you and have a healthy respect for you that leads us to, uh, to be honest about our sin, to confess it so that we can be cleansed. So Lord, as we stand in worship with this last song, I pray that you would hear our prayers and Lord, that you'd just deal with us on an individual basis. In Jesus' name, amen.